Luke chapter 2, this is a passage that I mistakenly had Luke read, begin reading a couple weeks ago, but we're coming back to it, and there's a reason why that got confused in my mind. But Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. Familiar story. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The passage that we just read is a very familiar passage that is often read at Christmas time and it's easy to read through fairly quickly. It talks about the Savior, the Lord. It talks about the multitudes of angels. It talks about the presence of God. And glorifying God in the highest. Why? Now we get caught up in the birth of Jesus during this time, and rightfully so. We, we ought to. That's, that's why we celebrate, of course. But it's easy to miss a huge truth that permeates Scripture from the beginning all the way to the end. We usually talk about Jesus as a Savior of the world. Jesus as a Savior of uh, people. But today I'd like to focus on God as the Savior. God as the Savior of all people. And then how does Jesus fit into that? We're told that a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, 700 years before this baby was born, a Hebrew prophet by the name of Micah was inspired by God to write that when the Messiah did come 700 years later, he would be born in, of all places, an obscure little town called Bethlehem. It's recorded in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and it says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephraim, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And if that's what God said was going to happen, that's what was going to happen. God is always exacting. His word is accurate in amazing detail and with perfect timing. In verse 7 in Luke 2, it says she gave birth to her firstborn son. And where was that? Well, verse 4 says, ah, look at that, Bethlehem. That's where it happened. But you know, it wasn't the parents that made sure that prophecy was fulfilled. Nowhere in the New Testament record, record does it say that Joseph was aware of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He, he could have been. I mean, there was teaching going on. He might have been aware of that. Nowhere does it say that he was really concerned about the fact that Mary had to be in Bethlehem when, the, when she gave birth to the Savior of the world. 
idea what Joseph was thinking, but probably wasn't that at that moment. Nothing in the Bible says that Mary said to Joseph, Joseph, I'm ready to pop for the Messiah. has got to be born in Bethlehem. Hurry up, let's go. Think about the crippled man laying, laying at the side of the pool of Bethesda for years. 
And one day Jesus steps into his life and says, Pick up your mat and walk. Can you imagine the transformation of his life? There's total danger in his life. But I find oftentimes overwhelming and so amazing in my own thinking is how God works not miraculously, but providentially. You see, in his providence, God doesn't interfere with the normal processes of life. But what he does is orchestrate all the different possibilities and all of those thoughts and all those actions of all the people necessary to accomplish exactly what he wants, when he wants it, with whom he wants it, and where he wants it. That's amazing. You know, God's providence, I believe, is the reason he means he and I are here. We were only one year into our ministry. I've told this part of the story before. When a group of pastors and, uh, and district superintendents came to India to check out the new work that was going on in India, and one of them was our district superintendent, Reverend Thomas George. And I can guarantee that it never crossed his mind, never crossed his mind at that moment, that I might be a pastor in his district, let alone on that side. You guys already had, you had a pastor at the time. It wasn't until four years later at General Council here in the United States with a couple thousand people milling around that I happened to see Thomas George. And I said, hey, how you doing? And the rest is history. But before that could take place, God had to get us out of India and back to the U.S. God had accomplished what he wanted to accomplish with us in India, whatever God's full plan was. And through the animosity of the Indian government towards Christians, he used the local government officials to petition the head of the, the government in New Delhi to issue a Leave India notice in 30 days. But you know, it wasn't just about me and how special <laughs> we are. In fact, I, I think it wasn't mostly about us, but because God loves you. God loves Sile Community Church so much that in His providence, He moved the hearts and minds of a government in a foreign country for you to bring us together to accomplish what He wanted. That same providence of God we see working here in Luke chapter 1. You have a decree by a Roman Caesar who knows nothing about the Messianic hope, about prophecy, about the Old Testament. He could have cared less about all of that, and yet every single thing that he did, every independent choice that he made, every willful act he made, ignorant though he may have been, worked to bring about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Nothing was happenstance. Nothing was coincidental. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for that. And that little child came into the world and cried his first cry of life. And I believe he cried as a baby's do. But when that child came into the world, nobody knew who it was. Nobody except Joseph and Mary. 
They had been told in, to name the baby Jesus because he would be the savior of the world, save people from their sins, and that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. Gabriel had told them that this would be the son of the Most High, and that he would sit on the throne of David and reign on the throne forever and ever. Nobody else was aware. There may have been other births in that little town of Bethlehem that, that same evening with all the people that were coming there. They had to be there. Maybe that's why the angel said to the shepherds, look for the one in the manger, a feeding trough. That's the sign. Maybe born there at, the time, at that same time in Bethlehem, all babies would have been wrapped in claws. That's it. Everybody did that. But there would be only one in the manger. How about anonymity? Not a grand entrance for God into the world. A grand announcement was being made. Not to the media, not to the Jewish leaders, not even to devout religious uh, believers and followers of, of God, uh, such as Anna and, and uh, Simeon, who were actually looking for the redemption of Israel. The announcement was made to a group of insignificant shepherds out in the field. The main point of that whole passage is summed up in one statement in verse 11. A Savior has been born for you. The whole event is summed up in that statement. A Savior has been born for you. That's the New Testament, isn't it? That's the gospel message. That's the heart of everything. That's, that's a pinnacle of redemption. That's what we're still telling people. A Savior has been born for you. You know, when I think of a Savior, when we think of a Savior, we think of Jesus. No we? Jesus the Savior. And we think this is a New Testament concept. But it's not really. It's actually an Old Testament concept coming to completeness in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, Israel knew God. They knew Yahweh as a Savior. That's a Jewish Old Testament concept. There are some who say, ah, that, that can't be. Because, you know, Christ in the New Testament, he's, he's compassionate and he's loving, full of grace, and, and he's a saving personality. But my goodness, the God of the Old Testament He's angry, he's vengeful, he's envious, he's jealous, he's hostile, and the punishing kind of deity. But that's not accurate at all if you really understand the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament was known to his people as a savior. Israel knew God as a Savior. Now that was not the way it was with the gods of other nations. Man made gods, man thought up gods. There is only one God, and one true and living God, the eternal God, and He is by nature a Savior. He is a saving God. So you listen to Him, He's a deliverer. He delivers people from danger. He's a rescuer. He is that, he is that by nature. That's who He is. You're not going to find that in any other religious system. In fact, you're going to find people who somehow are trying to appease their gods or somehow by their efforts, their own works, trying to save themselves. You're not going to find any other god who is by nature a savior or a rescuer. The gods of man run the gambit from being indifferent to being hostile. You remember the god of Baal in the Old Testament. Remember the time up on Mount, Mount Carmel and and uh, you've got the calling down, trying to call down a fire upon, upon a sacrifice. 
And the priests of Baal were trying to get his attention. They were wailing, they were begging, they were praying, they were yelling, they were cutting themselves. For what? For nothing. No answer. Indifference. You got the deists of today who believe that God just kind of wound up the world. Yeah, he created the world, but he kind of wound up the other one. This happens, whatever happens. Indifference. Then you've got the opposite extreme in the land of Canaan with the god Molech. Molech was so vicious and so hostile and so angry that he had to be appeased. And the only way to appease or pacify Molech was to take your newborn child, newborn baby, and offer your little baby on an altar of fire and kill your baby. And hope that your God would calm down. But what set Yahweh, the one true living God, apart from all the rest is that He is by nature compassionate, merciful, patient, tender-hearted, filled with loving kindness, and seeks to save people. And those who turn, those who turn to Him, He always provides a way of salvation. And patiently, in loving kindness, gives ample opportunity, and then some for them to turn to Him. That's called mercy. See, mercy is the fact that God doesn't deliver the consequences of their sinful behavior that they deserve because it's His nature to be patient. In Romans 2, Paul calls it the patience and forbearing of God, which is meant to lead a person to repentance. It's the reason why He's patient. It's the reason why He is, is puts up with us because he wants to give time for salvation. God, by nature, is that way. Yeah, but you say, what about those stories in the Old Testament about God wiping people out? Like in Egypt, you know, he sent his death angel, for me to say, and killed all the firstborn of all those people. It's oftentimes forgotten is that was the tenth plague in Egypt. God warned them nine times with severe plagues, and each time Pharaoh said to Moses, Sorry, 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 I'll let you go. When God lifted the plague, he said, ah, changed my mind. There was no repentance, there was no sorrow, there was no turning back from, from their decisions, true repentance. Their hearts did not and were not going to change. But even in that final plague, God provided a way of salvation. And it was a lamb. If a lamb was sacrificed and the blood was put on the doorpost and lintel, of God said, I'll pass by and the angel of death won't touch your house if you do that. Why? Because it's God's nature to deliver people from the consequence of sin. God said there's only one way to deliver us. And that's by the lamb. People understood that. It's Talked about, pronounced all through the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, we read, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Psalm 25, 5, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. In Psalm 51, David is praying to God because he had lost the joy due to his disobedience and rebellion. Listen to his words. This is New Testament stuff. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He knew God as a Savior God, and he knew that's where true joy came from. And the only way to make that right, and to have that joy, which does not change today, was through the sacrifice of a lamb for the forgiveness of sins. Even the shepherds out in the field that night, they knew. In fact, they were probably watching over the sheep that were going to be sold and taken to the temple to be sacrificed. They were used to unending sacrifices, trying to deal uh, with sin in order to rescue the nation. That's what Yom Kippur, that's what the Day of Atonement was all about. In order to rescue individuals from the consequences of their sin, they brought offerings to God and they were saying, God, we're sorry for our sin. Here's here our sacrifice. Forgive us. Why did they do that? Because they knew God as a saving God. But up to that point, that salvation had never finally been accomplished with one final sacrifice. So when the announcement came, there's been born today a Savior, the shepherds understood. They were excited. They didn't even have to ask a lot of questions. You see, the, the Jews would have understood this. Think about Mary. Back in Luke chapter 1, even she as a young girl knew that when she heard from Gabriel that she is going to be the mother of the Son of the Most High. She says in verse 6, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in whom? God, my Savior. She knew that Jehovah God was her Savior. Jesus had not come on the scene yet at that point. Prophet Micah had said in the Old Testament, who is, pardoning, who is a pardoning God like you? There is none. The Old Testament says God is a forgiving God who removes your sins as far as the east is from the west. He buries them in the depths of the deepest sea and remembers them no more. They knew God as a saving God. They knew God as a forgiving God. Yeah, but you might ask, if Jesus hadn't come yet, were their sins really forgiven? Yes. That's why God provided the sacrificial system with the Lamb whose blood was to be shed, had to be shed. People understood. Under people understanding they, they had sinned, came to God with a lamb and, and asked God to be merciful to them and God forgave them sins. Well, then you might ask, well, okay, here's this question. What part then did the Messiah play in all this? If that was all taken care of. Why Jesus? I thought Jesus was the Savior of the world. Well, yes, of course he is. We know that he and the Father are one. But beyond that, or more than that, as the Messiah, he would come and offer that final, complete sacrifice upon which all this forgiveness that the Scripture in Old Testament and New Testament talk about, all this forgiveness had always been given based on what Christ was going to do. What does that mean? Ready for this? All those in the Old Testament who had offered sacrifices were forgiven because... God would take all their sins and place them on Christ at the cross. God paid them for them. And just as we are forgiven today because God takes our sins and places them back on Christ, He places it back to the cross.
Christ bore the sins of all who believed in the Old Testament as well as all in the New Testament age. Salvation came from God through Christ to us. Remember what uh, Thomas George talking about? Look at the from, throughs, and twos, all through Scripture. From God through Christ to us. That's Romans 5 8, is it? For, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still uh, sinners, Christ died for us. From God through Christ to us. So when the angel said to the shepherds, There has been born to you a Savior, God, the Savior of all, now made it personal. Why Joseph was told in Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why Luke records the words of Jesus later in chapter 19, verse 10, when he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Each one of us are included in that. The angels say to the shepherds, For today in the city of David there has been born to Joseph and Mary a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's not what he said at all. He said, A Savior has been born to you. To you personally. For us. God made it personal, individual for you and for me because he loves us that much. That's Christmas is all about. Man by the name of Angelus Silesius, back in the 1600s, once wrote, and these words were later put into a hymn, Though Christ a thousand times in Bethlehem be born, if he's not born in me, my soul is still born. In other words, in the end, what does it matter if you don't take those words for you, personally?